So I'm Nicholas again from Capital Inc. I'd like to welcome you all to uh, this uh, session. Shipping is a capital intensive industry and uh, access to capital is uh, of critical importance uh, for private and public uh, shipping companies. So this panel will discuss alternative finance and private equity as capital providers to the industry. It's a key topic. Uh, we have with us uh, five uh, very um, senior expert uh, professionals on the topic. And uh, I will turn it over to Josh uh, to moderate it. I simply want to say to all of you, thank you for being with us and uh, for making this event uh, and this panel a, a great success. And with this, Josh, please take over. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Nicholas. Uh, first and foremost, I uh, wanted to thank you and, and your team for the opportunity to uh, host this panel uh, and uh, for all your hard work in coordinating uh, coordinating this uh, this esteemed panel. Um, my name is Josh Apselroth. I'm a partner at the law firm of Kedwalader, Wickersham and Taft based in New York City. Uh, we represent uh, a number of shipping companies across the range of, of subsectors and uh, across a range of, of corporate and transactional matters ranging from uh, mergers and acquisitions, corporate governance matters, securities and finance, uh, workouts, restructurings, and, and the like. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm used to, or I, I've had the pleasure of hosting these panels in the last two years, each of the last two years uh, in London, uh, in some of the most extraordinary venues that I've actually spoken in. Um, I'm, I'm here in slightly more humble confines than an attic in suburban New York City, uh, but uh, that doesn't diminish uh, what you know, I view as an equally distinguished uh, panel of, of experts on, on the topic of alternative finance and private equity. Um, let me just start by introducing the, the panelists. Um, first, uh, Nicholas Duran of Fernley Securities, Andy Dacey of JP Morgan Asset Management, Michael Kirk at uh, RMK Securities, Paulo Almeida of Tufton Oceanic, and Richard Jansen of Braemar. Um, I'd like to start, uh, rather than, than my introducing each of you and, and your background, I'd, I'd like to start by giving uh, each of you an opportunity to describe your background, describe your firms uh, and your institutions uh, relevant uh, experience and, and, and uh, offerings and then, you know, in order to maybe shape our discussion and, and direct the discussion, an opportunity for each of you to, to discuss, you know, briefly at a high level, what you view as the first and foremost issue or trend uh, within your, within your uh, business that, um, that you're seeing today in light of uh, current circumstances, whether it be COVID, um, environmental issues or, or the like, and then we can dig delve deeper into uh, each individual topic. So, so Mike Nicholas, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind mind starting, as you're you're the first on my on my screen clockwise, um, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. Um, so, I um, I had the asset backed financing team at Friendly Securities. Um, I'm a partner of the firm. I've been here for five years. I worked for a ship owner called uh, Stena before that for a few years, and and before that another stint at at Friendly. Um, we primarily focus on financing uh, companies in the maritime and energy sector. We're a 
well, by global standards, a small investment bank. Um, we have offices in New York and Oslo and, and around 90 employees. However, we have raised you know, around $11 billion of capital to the maritime industry alone in the last uh, four years. So you know, I think we're, we're, we don't do telecoms, we don't do retail, we don't do uh, fintech, but we do maritime, we do energy, and that's, that's kind of where we focus. Um, I think what we've seen from being a traditional investment banking firm uh, where we've relied on capital markets transactions a lot in the past, uh, both equity and debt, you know, uh, the focus has shifted more towards what we here call alternative finance. As someone said before the call started, alternative finance is actually becoming mainstream finance to some extent. So, um, so that's kind of uh, where we see it. I don't know if you wanted me to continue on the second part of your question or just pass it on to Andrian for an intro. Yeah, we, we could we could pass it on and get we'll get into the specific yeah. topics. Sure, Andy. Great, Thank, thanks Nicholas, thanks Josh. Uh, my name's Andy Dacey. I run the transportation group at J.P. Morgan. We've been doing this for the last ten years or so in terms of investing in the maritime and transportation industry. What we do, I guess, is a little bit different. We, we raise capital, we manage capital for mostly institutional investors. We invest that capital in different types of transportation assets. Ships are, are one of them. Um, we've been raising different types of pools of capital to focus on different parts of the industry over time and certainly have included everything from asset play, I think, as one might categorize it, to longer term, more income generating deployment of capital. So a real mixture. Uh, I do think that some of the constraints that we've seen in the capital raising industry within shipping specifically have only become tighter over the last couple of years. And uh, I think the search for capital is going to be one of perhaps the defining themes going into the next five years uh, for this industry as we confront all these other issues that we're talking about, whether it be ESG or fuel transition and things of that nature. Uh, but we manage about, uh, about three and a half billion of equity in the industry and, uh, and have assets that are levered as well. That's pretty much it. Thank you. Uh, Richard, on to you. Um, yeah, thank you very much, uh, Josh. Um, Richard Janssen, I'm a partner at Bremer Navis uh, Corporate Finance. I've been here for about four years now. Before that, I was a global co-head at Deutsche Bank, uh, or transportation, I should say. And before that, a long stint at DVD Bank in, in various locations. Um, so all in all, about 20 years in, in maritime investment banking. At uh, Bremer Navis, we, we focus um, on predominantly on restructurings and capital raisings, um, as well as um, helping um, lots of uh, hedge funds with loan portfolios that they buy from uh, various shipping banks. Um, so our forte is, uh, or focus is particularly on the private um, capital markets, not the public like for Nicholas. And um, yeah, we've uh, raised uh, a few billion dollars over the last few years in, in, in that space um, as well. And what I can say is um, it certainly hasn't become easier, uh, although the money is still there. It's just definitely a lot more competitive these days, uh, particularly post COVID-19 for maritime firms um, to get their hands on that uh, all needed capital. So I think uh, the challenge is there nowadays. I'll hand it over to the rest of my colleagues. Great, Michael. Sure, hi, uh, Mike Kirk of RMK Capital. Uh, RMK is an investment bank um, focused solely on maritime. So we've got offices in New York and London, 
and really focus kind of throughout the capital structure, everything from uh, first lien debt and, and leases, uh, you know, all the way through to common equity. Um, you know, what, what we do is typically capital raising, and usually these are private placements um, with uh, funds like some of the, the guys in the panel here, um, and, um, you know, as well as, um, you know, hedge funds, private equity funds, credit funds, other people that are looking at the space. We've recently launched Ascension Finance, which is a direct lending uh, platform in the space. This is for smaller owners, um, you know, where some of the banks have retrenched from the market. Um, so we're able to do deals, you know, even sub $10 million now, kind of the 10 to $25 million sweet spot is where we're targeting for Ascension. Great, thanks. And, uh, and, and Paulo, no mind. Uh, Paulo Almeida, I'm the Chief Investment investment management. Um, we're a shipping focused investment manager. We have about $1.2 billion under management. Most of that is in three uh, private funds that we've been running for the past uh, five to seven years. And a couple of years ago, we raised a London listed fund called Tufton Oceanic Assets, which is about $250 million market cap um, that has 18 ships in total, we have about 90 ships across all of those portfolios. What our main target is to give institutional investors um, exposure to shipping primarily on a uh, cash flow oriented basis. So we, we generate low teens, um, unlevered IRRs with diverse portfolios and uh, on average about three year uh, charter coverage, we pivot those portfolios over time, and now and then either as a firm or with some friends um, or with um, uh, invest other investors on a deal-by-deal -deal basis, we occasionally buy into assets either um, as a firm or into corporates such as Hafnia uh, Tankers, which we were associated with, and was, we were one of the co-founders of that business together with Blackstone. Great, great. Um, well, well, thank you uh, all. Um, so, so let's let's just get get started. Um, you know, a bunch of us, you know, have, have mentioned the the kind of breadth of the term alternative financing and, and the amorphous nature of it. Um, the you know, Michael, maybe, maybe I'll start with you. Um, the uh, you know, obviously, the tightening of the more you know what we view as some of us would view as the more traditional uh, capital markets and 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 lending. Uh, resources has resulted in, you know, increased activity in what I guess some would call alternative financing, direct lending, um, you know, private equity, uh, structured products and, and the like. Um, how do you view, you know, these alternative financing sources, a uh, relationship to, to the more traditional financing sources? Do you, do you view them as being in, in tension with each other? Or are they more kind of complementary of each other, and 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 you know, with, with the alternative financing sources, you know, filling a, a gap that that otherwise would be left unfilled. Yeah, I think I'd say certainly more complementary. Uh, you know, especially over the last couple of years, where you know the traditional financing sources, whether you know it's it's bank debt on one side of the equation or common equity on the other side of the equation have just become more difficult, you know, from the regular way channels like, you know, public equity as an example. Um, so I think, you know, alternative financing's had to fill the gap. I think it probably started as a, a small sliver that was kind of, you know, playing in more interesting, funky situations. And I think now it's become, you know, extremely regular way, 
um, you know, and for everything, but really the top borrowers and, you know, maybe certain public companies, it's an avenue that really everyone should be looking at. And I think for the most part is looking at as a, as a potential solution. Got it. Um, and Paulo, you know, on the equity side, uh, do, do you feel as though it's a similar, you know, a similar relationship to, to traditional, to traditional financing? Um, I, I'm not, well, it, investing in ships is, is what in the investment world are, is definitely called an alternative, uh, an alternative investment. So very different from um, straight equities um, or straight bonds. Um, we're, we're investing in ships to give alternative exposure to um, investors. Where we are actually, where we can actually be considered financiers to the industry, we do have about 20%, maybe a bit less of our portfolio are actually sale leaseback deals. So, you know, a lot of cases, particularly with older and often more specialized assets where banks, mid-sized companies have lost some banking relationships, um, not because of the company's fault, but because some of the banks are just doing less. Banks are also focusing more on new builds. Um, and, and therefore, there's a, there's a gap in the, in the capital structure where they need um, slightly more expensive um, uh, credit, which we're, we can offer on a sort of five to seven year basis, but where we generally take the residual value risk. So that, that's, that's the place where we, where we play, and we, we like that space quite a lot. And it's something that, that our investors like a lot. Got it. Um, so, so, so you mentioned you know, a couple things there, I think. One is that, um, is that traditional, you know, financing sources are, are still available. They're still, they're still out there. They're still active and, 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 you know, perhaps they're more active at the kind of large, larger company level. Uh, but, but this, um, you know, what we would do as alternative financing is more available to, to uh, kind of mid-sized and, and smaller, uh, and smaller operators. Uh, Nicholas, how do you view that dichotomy as um, impacting the competitive landscape within the uh, shipping industry? Does it does it kind of create more of a um, you know a benefit or an advantage for for larger shipping companies relative to their to their smaller counterparts? Or and and how can you know kind of the smaller shipping companies or more mid-sized shipping companies um, you know bridge bridge that gap? That's a very interesting question. Um, one would think that for a large part of the shipping industry, uh, cost of capital is the most important um, factor or variable. And in that sense, one would think that, you know, the tier one owners that have access to the cheapest debt are always going to win. At the same time, you know, this is a very strange industry where you have a US listed player with a hundred plus ships competing in a market with a Indonesian family-owned shipping company that owns three ships and, uh, and everything in between. And one would think that the larger player uh, would always win, but at the same time, um, we've also seen that the cost uh, for that, you know, the tier one type of co uh, companies of being in business, especially if they're private, um, uh, it can also be high. So I would think that, you know, there are financing solutions out there uh, for most companies in this industry, even for the smaller ones I just used as an example. You know, there's a, 
in fact, Indonesian company that we financed Maframex uh, tankers for um, with, with Western capital. Yes, the capital was expensive, uh, but they have low GNA and, and the ships were purchased at an extremely low price. So there's so many other uh, factors uh, in play there that, that I think mean that um, the interesting question is not whether you can survive with a higher cost of capital. Uh, I think it's more a question of, you know, that's more a question for whether companies, uh, listed ones, for example, can stay listed or whether this industry is going in a direction where it's all going to be about uh, private capital uh, and private solutions for everyone, but a very, very, very select few. And, and just as, as a follow-up to that, um, w would you say there are areas where, uh, you know, kind of alternative financing sources like, like yourselves uh, bring, bring more to the table or, or, or provide kind of benefits, if you will, to your clients that, you know, potentially uh, more traditional financing sources, you know, don't, don't offer around kind of expediency and expertise and, and, and otherwise? Yeah, I think Paolo's point was quite uh, good in that, uh, you know, even for the, call it tier one owners, uh, there are parts of their vessel portfolio of their fleet that are not uh, financeable from, from traditional lenders. You know, if, you, if you're a dry cargo owner and you want to refinance a single 10-year-old asset, you are going to struggle a bit. You're not going to get Nordea's and SEB's and Danske's attention on that. Uh, they all want to finance the, you know, future new building program of dual fuel vessels. Uh, rather than that older asset. And that means that, you know, large companies like that you can take Starbuck as an example, who's someone we've done a number of financings for. Uh, they've been very active in the leasing space because they've seen that the ability to optimize your um, capital structure and source of funding by finding, by matching the best source of capital for specific assets and specific projects uh, puts you, gets you out on top and gives you an advantage. Josh, if I, if I may, I think that sure. to, to, to um, second what, what Nicolas is saying, I think if you look at the last 10 years, um, there's been a quite a big shift in, 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 in funding sources for, for shipping, right? A, a decade ago, it was traditional senior lenders plus probably the equity capital markets. Um, obviously, we had a few downturns and a few bumps in the road since then. So I think the landscape has changed in terms of that uh, people repositioned uh, or institutions repositioned. Some obviously has le have left the space, but others have stepped in or private equity has become a little bit smarter and said, well, maybe we shouldn't be supporting everything with equity, but maybe a bit more from a credit angle. So I think the landscape is still as wide as it was before. It's however now much more bifurcated and much more specific with regards to, um, you know, types of capital and exactly what they're looking for. So nowadays as a ship owner, you're, you're having to spend a lot more time and actually pinpointing the right pocket of money for your particular need. Whereas before you really sort of had to ring up your, your, your few banking relationships and they could cover a much broader range. Uh, and that isn't the case anymore. Yeah. Well, Richard, that's, that's quite interesting and, and kind of gets to a follow-up question I had. So maybe um, you, you can address this as well. Do, have you found that with the entry of you know, additional market participants uh, around kind of the alternative financing uh, solution 
that, you know, it's almost that, 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 that some of the disadvantages, for instance, you know, higher, you know, cost of capital and, and, and otherwise, you know, are, are essentially self-correcting through competition among, you know, alternative financing sources, or is it, um, you, you know, over time, has that been the case or, uh, or has it kind of been stagnant? Um, that reminds me of what uh, my, uh, one of my former bosses used to say, every ship being built had, was financed in some way, shape or form, whether it was equity or a combination of debt and equity. So if it was built, somebody paid for it, and therefore it must have been financed in some way, shape or form. So I think so long as we keep building ships, uh, um, there is capital available. So yes, then the answer is automatically. Um, the sources uh, have changed and, and, the, and the types and the risk assessments and the risk reward propositions. But overall, the availability of capital hasn't changed. As a matter of fact, we don't have, as if we go out on behalf of a client trying to raise money, um, it's not that we're finding that there isn't money enough. There's plenty enough sources. It's however, a lot more difficult to find the right pockets so, you know, for example, alternative financiers, um, you know, the, the fleetscapes or, or the, 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 the MAPs, Northern Shipping Funds of this world, for example, um, you know, there's two dozen of those. You can go to them, but if it's not the particular flavor of the month or they've just done a bunch of things in tankers, they don't want to do another tanker deal. So it's a little bit more, um, there's a lot more soft factors that you have to keep in into take into account if you're going to raise capital uh, these days and that makes it a lot more challenging spend a, we spend a lot of time there for talking and engaging with all these capital providers to know exactly where we need to go and one thing that could fit today doesn't need to fit to the same fund tomorrow even though it's effectively the same deals so and, and that i think is probably the challenge for most people for a time there was a, a, a little bit of a let up when the banks were retreating the chinese leasing houses were coming in and they were you know, gung ho and, 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 and picked up a lot, lot of large deals to a degree, I think a bit of name lending to it. They are pretty full now on what they wanted to establish and now have become a lot more discerning in terms of adding new credit. So that has slowed down. Senior lending banks, traditional banks have pulled back. The gap hasn't been fully filled with the Chinese leasing houses. Therefore, alternative capital stepped into the void, which to me, for the most part was private equity that came down the, the capital stack a little bit and was a little bit smarter in how they deployed the money. Um, but overall, I think total capital to the industry remained pretty much the same. Got it. Thank you. Um, so so that, that's a nice, I think, segue to, to the next question I had for Andy, um, which, uh, so, so debt versus equity. Um, so, you know, historically, uh, equity, you know, was, 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 was popular, you know, a lot of companies went you know, exited, you know, sought liquidity from capital markets through IPOs. Uh, there was private equity that was available, um, you know, for, for joint venture type arrangements where, where, you know, the private equity fund and then, a, you know, ship operator owner would, would, would fund equity and, and take out kind of a more traditional banking bank loan. Um, it's, it seems as though the trend has been towards uh, at least third party money coming in uh, through, you know, in the form of debt, uh, but, but Andy, you know, you know, seeing as you manage uh, qu quite a bit uh, of funds for, for third party investors and, and our, it sounds like your, you know, your, your, your fund is in it kind of almost every, um, every, every stage or every level of the capitalization structure. 
Uh, can you just talk a little bit about how uh, investors are thinking about, uh, third-party investors are thinking about uh, debt versus equity and, and kind of the pros and cons of each? Sure, I, I think you can make money in every part of the capital stack. It just, it's just a matter of approach and I would say also scale. Uh, in the sense, we're almost the traditional ship owner that's lurking in this, in this panel, if you will, in the sense that we have a pretty big balance sheet. We, we go to the traditional lenders for our debt capital. Um, because of the size of the balance sheet, our borrowing costs are, are relatively low. Uh, and that provides, I think, at least from a scale perspective, it really depends on what business you want to chase after, right? So having a big balance sheet, having scale allows you, and also the operational expertise that I think is critical to putting money to work in this business, understanding the asset, but not just at the end of its life, but also while you run it. And, and again, we, we run the assets along the way too. So it's not just a residual value calculation, which again, not to say that's good or bad, but putting all those factors together allow us to ultimately compete for RFPs, whether it be for an LNG project or some dual fuel uh, type of undertaking, uh, bigger ticket assets that tend to go on longer term charters, uh, and, and access a lower cost of capital. So I think that scale maybe creates a bit of a bifurcation in the industry, right? We're, we're probably not gonna be pursuing the 15 year old Aframax that might be something that a smaller ship owner would be interested in. And, and certainly seeking out alternative sources of financing becomes a lot more relevant when you're smaller and you don't have access to the banks that you had in the past, which clearly is a theme of this panel. Um, but um, I know the one thing that I think is always, I suppose, perplexed me or not perplexed me, but I, I think it's the return challenge. And if you're starting to get sort of sort of low teens debt returns in shipping, uh, that might be possible if you can move in and out of an asset quickly and maybe you're providing bridge financing to help somebody get an acquisition completed that they go and then refinance at a lower rate. But uh, at least from, from where I sit, it's, it's hard to see long-term opportunities to, to generate a 12-13% debt return. Uh, I, I do think those are available on the equity side. And again, that's driven by the amount of leverage you take, of course. But, um, you know, I think uh, and the industry is changing, right? So I suppose over time, I think the question to ask is, you know, will alternative capital be available in, in significant quantities at, at attractive enough rates to allow that smaller ship owner to uh, survive and prosper in the long term? Or when you start looking at alternative fuels and some of the challenges that presents from an investment perspective, then what does that say about the type of shipping company that we need for the future? And uh, I don't say I have any answers, but these are the questions that we wrestle with on a daily basis. Paulo, do you have an, uh, uh, anything to add on that? Um, again, from you know, think, thinking about you know, where, where does the equity come from uh, for, for ship owners to the extent they're um, you know, looking to expand or, or refinance ships uh, and, uh, and, and you know, relative to, to, to debt financing, that's seemingly more, more available. That's, that's, that really is a tough one in terms of where traditional um, ship owners get equity from it's uh, i see equity coming into the into the business more through new types of ship owners or investment platforms like andy's like mine at tufton where we are putting capital to work we may have different capital structures but it's underlying institutional capital um, we tend to do smaller ticket uh, vessels and use less leverage, I think, than JP Morgan does generally. But 
we have different client bases and there's there's plenty of space in this industry for both of us and and lots of others just as um the real estate industry 30 years ago say was dominated in each city by a number of families um it's become very institutionalized the underlying ownership of those assets has moved towards uh, pension funds, mutual funds, etc. And I'm not saying that it's a certainty that that will happen in shipping over the next 10 to 20 years. I think it's increasingly likely. And I think that actually, um, I will probably talk about COVID um, later, but I think what, what COVID um, has shown is that in certain types of economic crises, and I think it's fair to call uh, the past six to nine months an economic crisis, and it's not over yet, that it, shipping can actually perform a, sort of a, a diverse portfolio in shipping. I mean, we, we saw some bad performers. We saw some good performers. Tankers performed extremely well, not purely due to COVID, but partly, partly due to that. Um, we've actually seen that shipping has performed, or at least our shipping portfolio, um, and anyone that has sensible leverage and, and charter coverage and has diversity as well, will have performed better than any aircraft leasing portfolio, at least one based on wide bodies, performed better than, than airports, performed better than most commercial real estate. And this may help put shipping, you know, sort of back onto the investment map. And I know that that's something that, that we've tried to do as Tufton, and I think JP Morgan has also been successful at that. And, you know, there's, there's plenty of room to, um, uh, for both of us to grow. Great, thanks. Um, so, so mindful of time, uh, and, and we'd be remiss, as Paolo mentioned, not to talk about the impact of COVID um, on, on the shipping finance landscape. Um, Michael, you know, maybe you, you can address, um, you, you know, the question of, you know, how, how has COVID-19 uh, and, and its, uh, its, its obvious consequences uh, impacted the shipping finance landscape, uh, and in particular, you know, your, your business around uh, d direct lending? Yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately these are assets that still need to be financed uh, one way or another. So I don't know that it had or will have kind of any long-term impact on the financing markets. I think the biggest thing we saw was just, you know, frankly, ship owners really having to focus on the blocking and tackling of their business. So whether that's getting crew on and off of ships, um, you know, making sure cargo is getting to port, some, some of those things. And so I think there was a delay in financing that really kind of lasted from April through kind of the, towards the end of the summer. So we're seeing activity pick up in a, in a big way as people kind of come back and, and are really looking now to maybe do some things that normally they would have, uh, you know, looked at a few months ago. Um, but, you know, I think ultimately, you know, the, these ships need to move, these cargoes need to move and, and financing needs to happen. So I don't really see a, a long-term impact on the financing market uh, from COVID. Have you seen, you know, as far as borrowers go, um, have you seen a variation between how, how borrowers have, um, you know, addressed the issues, you know, that you mentioned around, you know, operations and, uh, and, and, and otherwise, and, and has that factored into any of your, you know, underwriting or investment decisions or, you know, has the industry, it, you know, generally, you know, moved in tandem in, in adjusting to, you know, uh, operating in a, in a COVID style world. 
Yeah, I might turn it over to, to Andy or Paolo because they probably dealt with some of that stuff firsthand. Sure. Yeah, Andy, would you like to yeah, take that one? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I, I think margins increased a little bit theoretically if you're actually doing a transaction during the last six months. I, I, I would say that there's been a, a slower pace of transactions. I, I think buyers and sellers have felt at least in the shipping space, that there wasn't a lot of price transparency. There was certainly a lot of uncertainty that began at the beginning of the year back in, in March with, with China or even earlier than that in February. And then that sort of shifted more, more west, of course, as we all know. Uh, but, but from a volume perspective, at least what we experienced was volumes were down. For the, for the things that we did do, the banks, as I mentioned, were asking for, for wider margins. Now, base rates had gone down, which was attractive. So the all-in cost of financing had decreased. But there was a general sense of... of things were uncertain and there was risk attached to it. And I think that the people were trying to cushion that blow by, by pricing up a little bit. Uh, I think post COVID, I think as, you know, as Michael was saying, and I think as Paula was saying as well, um, you know, shipping has been done remarkably well during COVID for, for all the reasons that I think we're all familiar with. And had we been going through a similar crisis, I think with a bigger supply of vessels, perhaps in the order book coming into the market, we would have seen a much different picture, but, but the essential nature of all the goods moving around, I think, insulated us, at least in this crisis. And, and oddly enough, if you think about it from an institutional investor's perspective, the discorrelation that occurs when, and, and if you look historically as well, shipping actually has a negative correlation with many asset classes, which if you're building a portfolio and looking at an alternative investment, then, then putting something into shipping that is going to go up when everything else goes down, or at least stay stable when other things go down is, is attractive. Uh, and I think perhaps, and maybe I'm shifting a little bit, but that's one of the uh, attractions that institutional investors find in shipping. But, but scale is an issue. And, you know, shipping, you know, Paolo's point about the real estate world, I think, is, is, is really relevant. But what I was worried about is that shipping is, is not a, nearly as big as real estate, right? It's, it's a much smaller industry from a total capital perspective. And you know, if you add up all the ships in the world, we're probably still less than uh, Apple's market cap these days. So um, there's always that fine balance, right? We don't want too much money and we want the right kind of money to come in. Got it. Um, thank you. So, so um, you know, again, uh, another hot topic uh, in, in shipping finance, um, you know, ESG. Uh, Richard, um, I know we'd spoken a little bit about this uh, mm -hmm. in, in, our, in our introductory call. Um, you know, obviously large banks, traditional financing sources, regulators have all put, you know, a significant focus on environmental, we'll take the E part of ESG uh, first and, and probably last because we're running out of time. But uh, the, um, you know, they've all put a significant focus on the environmental uh, aspects of, of their borrowers and, and, and operators. Um, and, and, you know, they've made, made it clear that if you're not adhering to, you know, not just the regulatory standards, but also, you know, standards that they've promulgated through, you know, things like the, the Poseidon principles and just, mm -hmm. you know, through their general underwriting uh, checklists and, and, and criteria that, um, you know, if you don't meet those standards, then you're unlikely to have access to, to, to those, you know, type of tra more traditional financing sources. And a lot of the larger operators have, have of course, you know, taken that and, and, and you know, attempted and, and successfully attempted to adhere to, to those to those new, new rules of the road. Uh, how, how does that play into your, you know, investment decisions of, uh, you know, what we we're calling alternative financing sources, but but we'll just call them you kind of non-traditional 
uh, financing you know, sources? How does that play into your investment criteria uh, relative to, to that of others? Of course, it's, in, it's, it's important. It's, uh, uh, it's an important development for the global economy. And I think uh, shipping as an industry uh, certainly is, uh, is, is you know, um, an industry that can play at the forefront of this development, uh, can and should, quite frankly. And I think it's only commendable that there are, um, you know, that, uh, that there are initiatives like the Poseidon Principles and others um, that try to accelerate um, this this development. You see that there are um, indeed there is again this bifurcation, um, this this more granularity of of, of pockets of money that you can find. And yes, there is now this pocket, you know, if you want to be a larger borrower um, with one of the mainstream corporate banks, particularly, then an ESG element helps you get access. Uh, well, not actually get access, but actually to maintain access to that cheapest funding. Yeah. And um, so it, it goes with, it does, it works for on, on both ways. The ESG, positioning your business uh, to take advantage of the, the benefits of ESG on the one hand, obviously it's a cost um, in terms of renewing your fleet um, um, on, on that basis. But on the other hand, I think also to your offtake as your customers as a shipping company, you can help them attain their ESG goals. So actually, if you think about it as a, as a, as a longer supply chain, you as a shipping company can support your industrial clients uh, in their uh, initiatives. And on the back end, you have your banks that can uh, support you in actually attaining those goals. Uh, it's a win-win for the entire supply chain. What we do see on the other hand, there's still enough pockets. The market is deep and wide enough that if you're not particularly um, able as a company or because you're a small company or just don't have the funds or it's not necessary for your particular segment, this is not the end all. This is just about, can I get access to LIBOR 250 for a 60% financing on an 18 year profile yeah, with some of the Nordic banks or, or, or the French banks, et cetera. That's where ESG principles are actually relevant. If you're talking much broader, the alternative market, there's plenty of other pockets to get the capital. It will be more expensive. It doesn't have to be all 12% plus, but it will be more expensive, uh, harder to get, maybe smaller volumes, but there's still plenty of capital available. Got it. And, and Nicholas, maybe we'll just, I think, end on you. Um, What's what? What are you? What's in it for the financier? So, are, are you, you know, as a financier, uh, looking to um, ESG as as a way? You, how are you looking at it? I guess is my is my real question. Is it is it to benefit, you know, for the benefit of the greater good, or is it is it more kind of to uh, to be used as a criteria in um, you know understanding creditworthiness and uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, making investment decisions. How are you, how are you thinking about it? I, I get, you know, I understand why the big banks are, are caring. The JP Morgans of the world have a much larger platform. Um, but, but how are you thinking about the, the E part of ESG? Well, I think that we, um, what we see is that it's primarily the, the largest institutions that have a lot of focus on that. And whether that is out of uh, for altruistic reasons or um, or because uh, you know they're listed and, and they need to maintain you know a certain uh, uh, responsibility and have accountability towards the, the greater public, uh, that's one thing. But I don't really see a lot of the alternative financiers 
set the bar very high when it comes to the E part of ESG, apart from the obvious requirements uh, with things like uh, green scrapping, uh, etc. Um, and I think, you know, that's you have the luxury of being a bit more uh, flexible and, and vague uh, if you are a small alternative lender than if you are Nordea, for example. And I think that's reflected, you know, someone needs to finance the 10-year-old ships of this world. Not everyone can be running after uh, offshore wind uh, SOV uh, tender financings at uh, less than L plus uh, 200 basis points. You know, that's not the business for everyone. So I think you'll see that there is going to be a fairly uh, broad range in the approach towards the E in ESG amongst lenders, whether it's uh, traditional lenders or, or alternative ones. Got it. Well, well thank you so much. We're, we're getting the wrap up music uh, in my ear right now. So uh, <laughs> uh, I, uh, you know, obviously we've only touched the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot to talk about here. It's a broad, broad subject, but I, I wanted to thank our panelists for their, for their tremendous insight and, and their time. Uh, it's been a, it's been a really interesting conversation. Uh, and uh, again, thank you so much for, for participating and thank you to Capital Link. Uh, I was I was told to um, uh, you know ask anybody who had any questions or follow up questions and, and the panelists to the extent they have time to join the Capital Link networking lounge uh, to address any any follow up questions from the audience. Uh, so if, if you can do that, great. If not, thank you so much again for your participation. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thanks.